Hello and welcome to Tiski Sour, where we are even more appreciative than usual to be joining you on a Wednesday evening um, because we went through quite an ordeal yesterday. You probably know about it if you if you follow the channel because we talked about it extensively. There was a, a deletion incident on YouTube. We'll be giving you a bit of an update later on the show. I should say, Dahlia, this is your first time back in, in Navarra's second coming. How are you feeling? Were you stressed <laughs> yesterday? I can't tell you how glad I am to see you on the other side of my screen right now. What a what a dramatic 48 hours. <laughs> had a, like, really scary, but yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it later on in the show and what it tells us about glitchy infrastructures. Mm. We also did have a call um, with YouTube today, so we can give you sort of a bit more information about what happened, although we still are largely in the dark. The main story today is not YouTube, it's not anything to do with Navarra Media, it's the budget, the big announcement by Rishi Sunak about his spending plans. There was also a spending review, which means that it determines the next three years of the British economy, not just the next one. I'll be joined by James Meadway to discuss that. Um, before we get started, um, hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. And do tweet your comments, your questions on the hashtag TiskySour or in the comments box. At today's budget and spending review, Rishi Sunak said his goal was to reduce taxes and railed against those who want to expand the state. However, he also promised a boost to public sector spending and his budget leaves Britain with its highest level of tax since the 1940s. I'm joined by James Meadway to discuss what the budget means. I'm not going to ask your big picture take on the budget yet because we're going to we're going to go through, you know, parts of Sunak's speech one by one and, and take the themes as they go. So to get us going, as is customary, the budget started with an outline of the state of the UK economy as assessed by the Office for Budget Responsibility. I'm grateful to the OBR for their work, and I'm pleased to say they now expect our recovery to be quicker. Thanks to this government's actions, they forecast the economy to return to its pre-COVID level at the turn of the year, earlier than they thought in March. Yeah. Growth this year is revised up from four to six and a half percent. The OBR then expect the economy to grow by 6% in 2022, and 2.1, 1.3, and 1.6% over the next three years. In July last year, at the height of the pandemic, unemployment was expected to peak at 12%. Today, the OBR expect unemployment to peak at just 5.2%. That means over 2 million fewer people out of work than previously feared. And wages are rising. Compared to February 2020, they have grown in real terms by almost three and a half percent. Those were some pretty decent sounding statistics. Growth of 6.5% this year, followed by 6% in 2022. Unemployment to peak at 5.2% next year, instead of the 11.9% previously predicted. That sounds you know, especially impressive. And wages which have grown in real terms by 3.4% since February 2020. 20. James, from what Rishi Sunak said there, the, the points he'd taken out of that report from the Office for Budget Responsibility, it sounds like the British economy is in a very healthy state. Is, is that a correct interpretation of, of his presentation? Not really. And it's not a correct interpretation of what the, the Office of Budget Responsibility figures are telling you. I mean, first of all, the, these things are forecasts, right? And, and what Rishi Sunak is saying there is that, hey, we got the forecast wrong before, and now we're changing the forecast and things are going to be magically better. This hasn't actually happened. Uh, and what you've seen over the last year is that kind of conventional economic models and most economists have basically got large parts of what coronavirus is going to do wrong. I mean, there was a wide expectation early on that this would be a sort of short, sharp shock, a very rapid rebound, and life will go back to normality pretty rapidly. That isn't going to happen. We're going to be living with uh, COVID now for, for decades, effectively. So that isn't going to happen. Uh, the projections in the future, once you look beyond this kind of period of recovery from the real 
sort of deep crisis last year. Once you look beyond that, even the OBR forecasts say that basically it's going to be quite low growth. And, and to be honest, from my point of view, I think they're probably being uh, optimistic. We're, we're going to be looking at years now of very, very rocky sort of fits and starts of growth, of uncertainty, of supply chain disruptions, potential new recessions down the line, financial instability, all of these sets of things. So none of this actually looks particularly good. But right now, Rishi Sunak can say, hey, our forecasts say it's going to be all right and things don't seem too bad. He, he's bet the farm on this, by the way, which I think is a, a huge risk for him to be taking when it turns out in six months' time, things aren't anywhere near as good uh, as he's trying to claim. I take your point that these are forecasts. The statement that stood out to me was this unemployment to peak at 5.2% next year instead of the 11.9% previously predicted. As you say, it's a forecast, it could be wrong, but it does seem like you know people wildly o- overestimated the effect that coronavirus would have on unemployment. And we are in, you know, a much better situation than, than I think we, you know, we on this show um, often often predicted. What's what's that about? What's going on? A couple of things there. One is the impact of, of the colossal expenditure, really, through the, the furlough scheme, which is what, 190 billion, I think the figure is, 9 million people protected by it at its peak. Uh, and, and then some additional bits and pieces of support that the government put into the economy. Now, if the government moves and spends that amount of money, whatever else happens, it's going to have some impact on unemployment, right? The question is how much it has. And once you're saying, okay, we're going to simply pay a large part of a great deal, uh, a very large number of people's wages for a period of time, then you're going to insulate them from the effects of of, of falling demand, which is what happened last year and what what is coming out on this side. So that's the first thing. The second one is probably a slightly more uh, complex point, but it's to do with how economists tend to think about the world, which is I think a lot of people, a lot of economists assumed that what was happening with COVID was a shock to demand. That, in other words, you would have people spending less and that would be the driver of the recession and not thinking through what was also going to happen when you had to impose all these restrictions on how people work, how they supply goods, how they supply services and and the way that would play out in the labour market. And and that's kind of what we're seeing in this country right away across Europe, certainly in North America, where you have these really tight labour markets in particular bits of the economy where people are still, there are still some restrictions in place, increasing demand for some services. And actually, there's people now, especially in the US, you can see people going out and strike and demanding higher wages. And bits of that starting to happen even in this country. Now, this, from the point of view of here we are in Navarra, this is a good positive thing. There should be more people going out and strike. There should be more people demanding more money because that's the only thing that's going to get us through the next sort of few years, which is going to be a time of, of much higher inflation. Uh, than we've been used to over the last sort of 10, 20 years or so. Let's go on to spending. In his speech, Sunak said that the budget for foreign aid would return to 0.7% of GDP by 2024. That's after being cut by the Tories, which was, by the way, not in their manifesto. He also said this about budgets for the rest of the public sector. Today's budget increases total departmental spending over this parliament by £150 billion. That's the largest increase this century, with spending growing by 3.8% a year in real terms. As a result of this spending review, and contrary to speculation, there will be a real terms rise in overall spending for every single department. And public sector net investment as a share of GDP will be at the highest sustained level for nearly half a century. If anybody still doubts it, today's budget confirms the Conservatives are the real party of public services. Rishi Sunak there announcing a real-term rise in the overall size of every single department's budget in government. He also said that under his plans, public sector investment as a proportion of GDP would be the highest they've been this century. James, I want your take on this. It sounds like the words of a chancellor who's who's abandoned austerity. Has he? Uh, Yes. One of the researchers at the Institute of Fiscal Studies put it quite well earlier, which is that austerity is over, but it's not undone. In other words, yes, there is going to be increases in real terms right the way across what government does. So the government is going to be spending more money on basically everything it does. That isn't enough to undo the previous 10 years where it was basically cutting everything or, or certainly not increasing spending enough to keep up with demand, as happened in the health service. So although there's a, a kind of turning point here, and actually it's been one that's been in train for a while, you know, as soon as Boris Johnson took over as prime minister, 
this government started increasing uh, public spending. It was up something like 4.1% uh, in his first year as, as, as uh, prime minister. Uh, and then we had coronavirus hits, obviously public spending goes crazy. And then even as we move out of that first phase of uh, the coronavirus crisis, they're still maintaining quite a, a high rate of public spending increase. I mean, to put it in context, uh, I think there's some disputes over the figures that Rishi Sunak used there. The, the IFS reckons it's a sort of 3% annual average increase uh, in public spending uh, to the end of this parliament. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, when he was uh, chancellor, increased public spending on average by about 4% a year up until the financial crisis. So it's not as rapid as new Labour in government, but it's still a big turn from what we've seen in the sort of 10 years or so of consistent real terms cuts in what departments are spending. I mean, the way to look at this, by the way, is not Rishi Sunak has had some, I don't think he's had some damascene conversion to, to the joys of Keynesianism uh, and the need for a bigger state. You saw his little homily at the end of his speech, which is really just there to appeal to like Tory backbenchers and the Tory membership, where he says, I still believe in low taxes and a small state, really. But he's not making the decisions here. This is Boris Johnson's government. It's Boris Johnson's uh, budget. And he's someone who really doesn't care about all that sort of ideological stuff. He's quite happy to just spend a load of money because it makes him popular and it makes it easier for the Tories to win the next election. That's why they're doing it. So, yes, I think there has been a, a turning here. Uh, and I think we're going to have to be quite careful about how this plays out and what that increase in spending means. It doesn't mean that everything's magically going to look suddenly better all over the place. We're going to have to fight and say we need more, much more than the government is putting in, especially in things like uh, the green investment programme. But nonetheless, it's not just that cuts are going through all the time in every department like they used to. Let's look at some charts. These are from the IFS, so the same organisation where they said this is, this is austerity, which is ending but not being un, undone. So we'll start with education. Boris Johnson has often called it his priority. As Rishi Sunak said, that they will be increasing spending on education, but it is only going to get back to 2010 levels in 2024. So one, you've got a wasted 15 years there where every child has had to go through school with, with less investment than they than they were able to in, in 2010. And also, you know, even if you hadn't seen that dip, a stagnating amount of spending on, on children for 15 years is historically, you know, disastrous if you look at how, how fast it was rising before that. We can also look um, at all the other departments. So this again is from the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And here they show you how this budget leaves departments again compared to 2010. The health and social care department, that's been going up throughout the whole of austerity, potentially not by enough to, to make up for, for an aging population, etc. But it's going up. The home office, way up, way, way higher than it was in 2010. Education will only just have recovered by 2024. All the other departments, even in 2024, will still be considerably below where they were in 2010. That, that DWP one that really stands out for me, as well as as well as housing, um, both ending up um, more than 40% lower than they were in, in 2010 in terms of those departmental budgets. One thing that, to me, sort of gels oddly with these um, graphs, or which, which I'm going to ask James for an explanation of, is how this compares to tax rates. So while we have these these budgets which have lower um, uh, lower levels of funding than they did in 2010, we do have the highest levels of taxes since the 1940s. Um, so as you can see here, um, by 2024, according to the plans in this budget and spending review, we will have the highest level of taxes as a proportion of GDP since the 1940s. How do we square that circle, James? Why have we why have we got historically quite high level of taxation, but still the majority of departments poorer than they were 10 years ago? Uh, the, the issue here is, is the kind of the overall balance uh, of government spending. Uh, what you've seen is that even during austerity, the government was consistently putting more money in real terms into the health service. Now, crucially, as you said, this wasn't actually enough to keep up with demands of, of an aging population, essentially. So even though more money was going in, the NHS was still starting to lag. I mean, lag quite severely by the time we hit the, the pandemic uh, last year. So that means that the government is spending more and more of everything it spends on health. And then, of course, more and more also on things like pensions, which have been, again, protected, not shown on the graphs there uh, for a long period of time. So that's actually like quite a big part of what the government now does. I mean, a large part of what government 
does in terms of how it spends its money is simply health, bit of social care and pensions, and then everything else is jammed in over here. So that's how you can get this peculiar thing where taxes have gone up, but most departments have seen this decline in how much money they have relative to 2010 because the balance of what government is doing has shifted over those 10 years or so. So that, that's how we got to this situation now. Um, the, the other part of that, of course, is, is that you know, broadly, this government is trying to target a somewhat uh, tighter balance the, the new Labour did uh, when it was in office. Uh, Rishi Sunak has introduced this fiscal rule that says, you know, he's going to target a surplus actually on, on day-to-day spending. In other words, the government getting more in taxes than it spends day-to-day in three years' time. So that's a certain amount of a sort of squeeze that's being applied there. And that means that you go off and try and find more taxes to, to deal with it. There's also this business of trying to bring down the amount of government debt relative to GDP, which is another sort of squeeze that's being applied. Put all that together, uh, and this gives you the, the, the total mix of things. What got Rishi Sunak off the hook was exactly where we came into this discussion, which is that the Office for Budget Responsibility, the official forecasters, have turned around and said, hey, the economy's grown faster than we thought. That's given Rishi Sunak another £30 billion or so to, to play with. Again, this is a kind of forecast error rather than something real. The economy has grown faster than expected, but it's not like he's uh, had to say, okay, now we're going to go out and tax the rich more or borrow more money or whatever. It's a bit of a free gift for him. So he's been able to use that to increase spending over this period of time and avoid some of the harder arguments about whether you want to increase borrowing, whether you want to increase taxes. Show one more chart on wages. We often hear Boris Johnson say that you know wages wages are rising. The OBR forecast, you know, presented by by the IFS, suggests that average wages in twenty twenty five will be around eighteen pounds. Um, if we had continued on the trend that Britain was on from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand and eight, in fact, wages would be eleven pounds seventy higher per hour, so closer to thirty pounds an hour. So that's just to show you. Well, I mean, the Conservatives would say the disastrous consequences of the financial crisis. In reality, it's the disastrous consequences of austerity. This is quite unique um, to Britain, seeing a chart that looks quite as stark as that. Um, Let's talk about the climate, and I'm going to bring in Dahlia for that topic. First of all, um, let's have a look um, at a clip from the budget. Of course, today's budget came just days before COP26. Britain is hosting it and so has an extra responsibility to show leadership. That all means this announcement came as a bit of a shock. Let me turn now to air passenger duty. Right now, right now, people pay more for return flights with and between the four nations of the United Kingdom than they do when flying home from abroad. We used to have a return leg exemption for domestic flights, but were required to remove it in 2001. But today, I can announce that flights between airports in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will, from April 2023, be subject to a new, lower rate of air passenger duty. This will help cut uh, cut the cost of living, with 9 million passengers seeing their duty cut by half. It will bring people together across the United Kingdom. And And because they tend to have a greater proportion of domestic passengers, it is a boost to regional airports like Aberdeen, Belfast, Inverness and Southampton. Days before COP starts, we're announcing a massive cut to taxes on domestic flights. We should be phasing out domestic flights, not encouraging them. You know, how big a surprise was that? We often talk about, you know, the government not going far enough when it comes to climate change, but this is just an actively, you know, this this seems like vandalism days before you host an international conference. Yeah, it's totally ludicrous. And, and to announce something like this just before the UK is hosting the climate negotiations it's really just a kick in the teeth. And not only does it tell me how little this government actually cares about climate breakdown, but it also just tells me how comfortable this government is. You know, we are in, we're in 2021. We are in the last decade that we have to take the necessary radical action to evade the worst excesses of climate breakdown. 
at this point in time, a government should not feel able to do something like this. No matter how much pressure any lobby, you know, aviation lobby, whatever is putting on them, it should be seen as essentially political suicide. You know, the public pressure should be that high that it should be seen as political suicide to announce something like this. Um, you know, and if we had a public that was, you know, alerted by their media, you know, I have barely seen any senior political journalists actually drawing attention to this and drawing attention to the implications of this, then, you know, something like this would be an utter scandal. Because as you said, not only is the government not doing enough to, you know, protect us from the excesses of climate breakdown to halt climate breakdown, but they're actually actively going in the wrong direction and bringing us closer to that reality. And it, it also tells me that, you know, as COP is coming up, we have to make sure that any attempt by this government to portray itself as a, you know, world leader of climate, as a climate leader, needs to be completely exposed for what it is, because there is no amount of bioengineering, of talking about fictitious carbon capture storage technologies that don't even exist yet, no amount of, of tree planting that can compensate for making a decision like this um, in this particular moment. This is not how you help out the aviation sector and aviation workers who understandably are not, are likely to be nervous about what their future looks like in you know a post-carbon world as we try to transition away from fossil fuels. But the way that you put aviation workers at ease isn't by bringing them closer to climate breakdown, it's by retraining and redeploying them in well-unionized jobs in other sectors. And, you know, that is that is how you actually tackle not only tackle the, the issue of worker insecurity and worker nervousness about what a post-carbon future looks like. But it's also bizarre that we are having this conversation about, you know, internal aviation in a country as small as the UK, when train travel, which is actually a much more sustainable way of moving around, a much more accessible way of moving around, that. It is completely unaffordable and also poorly planned in this country. It would be much better for you know everyday working class people if money was actually invested into renewable transport, into renewable train tra transport, and also in rewiring how that transport is, is planned so that it's easily accessible, particularly for people in areas that have been neglected. And that the, that transport is actually brought into public ownership so that it's much cheaper so that people can access it. That would actually bring people together rather than focusing on this method of transport that is really only for very rich people. Let's be frank. When was the last time anyone took an internal flight in the UK? You've seen a lot of Rishi Sunak. We're going to move on to the Labour response. The budget was responded to by Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor. Let's take a look at what she said. The Chancellor in this budget has decided to cut taxes for banks. So, Madam Deputy Speaker, at least the bankers on short-haul flights sipping champagne will be cheering this budget today. And the arrogance, after taking £6 billion out of the pockets of some of the poorest people in this country, expecting them to cheer today for £2 billion given to compensate. Yeah. In the long story of this parliament, never has a chancellor asked the British people to pay so much for so little. Yeah. Time and again today, the chancellor compared the investments that he is making to the last decade. Yeah. But who was in charge? Yeah. Who was in charge in this last decade? They were. Decent points. So there were some some references we hadn't mentioned yet. So the champagne issue. There were changes to VAT on on certain forms of alcohol. Now fizzy wine will be um, charged at the same rate as non fizzy wine, and um, which does include champagne, of course. And we've already talked about the cut to short haul flight taxes. Um, she decried the cut to universal credit, which took six billion pounds away from people who are entitled to that benefit. There was something for people on universal credit, which was an increase in the, or a decrease, in fact, in, in the taper rate. So when you start to earn, they'll take less money off your universal credit for every pound earned. And then the standard but decent point about the fact that this comes after 10 years of Tory austerity, what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes. James, did Rachel Reeves get the tone right in that response to Rishi Sunak? 
I thought she actually did a, a very good job with it. I mean, she, she's a relatively unusual politician in that she's quite comfortable talking about sort of economics issues. I mean, particularly on the Labour side, most people like will, will literally find anything else other than, than economics to talk about, which is just been a sort of permanent problem because the Tories talk absolute rubbish about the economy. And then you have a bunch of MPs who won't challenge them properly on it. Uh, Rachel has a background in, in economics and is very confident about doing this. And, and you can see the Tories getting rattled by the amount of noise they started making. This was all a good sign. And also these are good, solid, you know, pick your enemy and define who it is and say that the Tories are actually on these people's side is exactly the right thing to do. Cutting the bank surcharge whilst also cutting universal credit for, what, four, four and a half million people. It is a disgraceful thing to do. It's very, very clear where your real uh, preferences are. Spending your budget speech mostly talking about you know cuts to alcohol duty, which is fine, but spending more time in this than the climate emergency ahead of COP. It tells you again something about your your real priorities. I would just say on the the, the air passenger duty thing, I think it's absolutely extraordinary to do this before a conference where the government is for the entire time running up to COP has wanted to go in and say, we are leading the world on climate change. We want everybody else to do better. This is what Alok Sharma has been saying. This is what the prime minister has been saying. And now they have to go in and say, oh, you must do better to all these developing countries when every single one of them can turn around and just say, oh, well, you've cut uh, fueled, you've cut taxes on flying. You're complete hypocrites if you're asking us to do more when you're making it cheaper and easier for people to fly in your country. It scuppers. It really damages uh, what, what the government's trying to do in COP. So I find it an extraordinary intervention. The, the only way to look at it, I suppose, is to try and put it in Tory party terms as this is Rishi Sunak playing again to the crowds, the climate sceptics, the small state weirdos, the Thatcherites in the Conservative Party membership for when he wants to run for being prime minister himself. But it's risking an entire international conference to do it. So, yes, I thought Rachel Reeves intervention there was very good. The problem you've got with what Labour's doing is, well, what would you do about this instead? And it's still a little bit vague. If you saw some of the, the stuff they were tweeting earlier about, you know, Labour would tax fairly. Well, okay, what does that mean, really? If you say everybody wants to tax fairly, what does that actually mean? And pinning Labour down on what they would do differently rather than what is their critique was always, uh, I think, difficult. David West, um, with 10 euros, a relevant super chat. If only Labour were offering policies that were better than the scraps the Tories are throwing instead of going for sound bites with no substance to back them up. Very quickly, James, is that fair? There's too much of that. I mean, Labour said they will spend £28 billion a year on, on you know, Green New Deal investments. I mean, this is, this is big. This is actually bigger than Labour said they spend in 2019 in the Green New Deal. Uh, but they don't make enough of that. And actually, it's a little bit, here's one thing, here's one thing, here's another thing. They don't necessarily stitch it all together as one coherent story at the minute. I thought we saw elements of that in uh, Rachel Reeves' speech, where she's starting to have a go at the millionaires sipping champagne on their short-haul flight. I mean, this is good. But there's not enough of that. So everything turns into this kind of slightly like, well, there's a little bit of a complaint here. There's a little bit of a complaint there. What's your big picture? What's the world going to look like? What's this country going to look like? Should Labour manage to form a government in a few years' time? Unlikely as it presently seems, to be quite honest. That's the problem that, that, that Labour is up against. And they just haven't solved it. And they don't, at this point in time, really look like they're about to solve it. Finally, let's talk about the media. We're not going to cover in, in detail how this budget was covered, but there is... One tweet from BBC News that we should bring up, um, which is sort of indicative of everything that can be wrong about economics coverage in this country. Um, so the BBC tweeted, the UK government borrowed heavily to cope with COVID. Now, Chancellor Rishi Sunak has to balance the books and pay for spending promises. Now, I saw, James, you, you shared that and shared a, a complaints link alongside it. It's now been taken down. So that was potentially some some effective Twitter activism. Can you explain what is wrong with that tweet from the BBC and why you think they are still tweeting nonsense like this? The BBC is too, too close to this government. I mean, that's, that's been obvious for, for a long period of time in lots and lots of different ways this is happening. Uh, it, it operates under sort of a cloud of fear and uncertainty about its future. And this, this cows it and disciplines it. And it ends up doing things like what, to me, looks like you're, you're basically tweeting a, a Conservative Party press release rather than actually writing a, a sort of more neutral, at least, description of, of the kind of choices that uh, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor faces. And that's the issue. He has choices to make about what to do. He does not 
have to balance the books. And actually, if you look at what the government is doing, it isn't balancing the books because it's going to borrow lots of money to spend on capital investment. And it'll say that this is okay uh, to do that. So, so on every level, saying he has to balance the books, he's not doing that. He doesn't have to do that. You shouldn't be using this language. It's nonsense to talk like this uh, about a national economy. And, and to be honest, I think if people are on Twitter uh, and they see things like this, especially from the BBC, which is supposed to be a public service broadcaster after all, then I think people should challenge it and should poke journalists about this. We have to get to the point where especially political journalists can talk in a grown-up fashion about how the economy operates rather than this kind of nonsense about balancing books or the cupboard being bare or, God help us, Rishi Sunak's piggy bank. You know, we have to get out of this infantile, stupid, economically literate way of speaking about things. And I think it's time that journalists get challenged on some of the language they use in this and get challenged consistently about it. James Meadway, thank you so much for taking us through today's budget. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Next story. As you might already know, we at Navarra Media had a serious falling out with YouTube on Tuesday at 10.30am. They deleted our entire channel. We were told it would be permanent, but after a public backlash within three hours, we were reinstated. If you want to know more about the initial sequence of events, we go through it blow by blow on Tuesday night's show. Obviously, that wasn't a tisk, it was an impromptu show. What I want to do now, though, is fill you in on what has happened since then. We still don't know exactly what happened on Tuesday or why we were deleted, but today we did have a call with people at YouTube. They told us they were still trying to work out exactly what went on, but they could tell us two things. First, the decision to delete the channel wasn't made by an algorithm, it was a human error. Second, our deletion wasn't the result of just one mistake, but two. The first mistake was flagging us as an account that promoted scams or spam. You'll know we do neither of those things. And the second mistake was punishing us by deleting the account. In other words, even if we had been guilty of what we were being accused of, deleting the account should not have been the course of action they pursued. So two mistakes, one saying we were you know, producing spam and the other saying because you're producing spam, you need your account to be deleted. As I say, still many unknowns. We don't know. We know it was a person now instead of being an algorithm, but we don't know who or why made these two errors. We'll, of course, update you as we get more information. Dali, you, you'll know exactly the same as I do when it comes to, to this on the details. So I want to go, um, I suppose, instead of just speculation to talk about sort of your take on this. I did a show with, with Aaron and Ash yesterday on the topic. I, I've seen from Twitter, you also have lots of thoughts um, on, on, on what this, this incident tells us. So, so what, did you, what was your experience of, of Navarro getting deleted? What, what are your political takeaways? Yeah, what as I said before, it's incredibly dramatic uh, sort of 24 hours, but we made it through. Uh, and I think that this whole incident really shone a light onto the problems of the fact that we live in a society where almost so much of our life is platformized, particularly, you know, our media and our communications infrastructure. And so, you know, the big the big five platforms the uh, you know Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Alphabet, which own Google and YouTube. I think it's it, they don't really operate like tech companies. I think it's a misnomer to call them technology companies. They're much more like giant, multi-layered infrastructures. In fact, in, providers of many different infrastructures, which is why I kind of alluded. Sometimes think of them more as like a government, not in terms of their any time kind of political participation or democratic process, but in terms of their kind of these overarching organizing forces that have lots of, that govern lots of different infrastructures within them. And they've taken on this very ubiquitous embedded role uh, in our society. And they've done that in a really rapid way. And so it, it's become, if you really think about it, it's become impossible to communicate, to travel, to, to purchase things, to buy consumer goods without going through one of these platforms. And on top of being deeply unaccountable, they are often very glitchy. And that's and when they glitch, it really shows us how fragile a lot of the systems that we rely on are. It sort of plunges people into uncertainty. There was a lot of news, for example, that came out of WhatsApp being down and the implications that that actually had, particularly in the global south, for a lot of workers and a lot of 
the, you know, the ways in which people communicate and stay together. And that kind of glitchiness is, is partly to do with scale. It's partly to do with the fact that they've gotten so big and so all-encompassing in such a quick way, in, you know, so rapidly. And part of it is to do with a sort of shaky reliance on a combination of machine learning and outsource human labor. You know, we often, there was a lot of speculation about was it an algorithm or was it a human? In reality, those two things are very intertwined. It's a person that designs an algorithm or it's a group of people that design an algorithm. And when an algorithm flags up content, that content is often then reviewed by underpaid, overexploited workers, largely in the global South. And so this very muddled and splintered, you know, geographically splintered way of of building our infrastructures creates this 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 kind of systemic glitchiness and we got a little taste of that but we were actually very very lucky because when i'm you know not doing my phd on platforms and when i'm not running my mouth on the internet i do a lot of trade union support work for uber drivers and those few hours when we were locked out of what is essentially a key part of the livelihood of a lot of navara staff members really reminded me of what it's like when I'm trying to fight to get a deactivated driver reinstated on the platform. More often than not, a driver will be deactivated from Uber. They won't be told why. They won't, they'll be told it's permanent, it can't be reviewed, and they'll be left to fight with an automated messaging system for their livelihood. And it's only when we get external political pressure involved that we can get them um, reinstated. And even when they are reinstated, we don't get an answer. And to me, that was much more akin to what's happened with Navara than, you know, the idea of Silicon Valley execs sort of censoring Navara in the way that, for example, they removed Donald Trump off the Twitter platform. But that doesn't mean that it's any less sinister or it's any less a commentary on how power is concentrated in society today. It shows us how fragile and unaccountable the platforms that increasingly run our lives are, and the fact that, of course, these platforms don't conduct themselves as providers of essential services. They conduct themselves as private companies. And so for us, as a somewhat prominent media organization with a lot of political backing, we got off really easily. But for many workers who rely on these platforms to survive, to communicate, to live, including other content creators, this is actually really um, a really endemic um, problem. And so I think that it actually exposed a really, really interesting problem with how we are organizing our society that because it's infrastructural, it's in the background. We don't really think about it. it. It doesn't come into our purview until it messes up. And when it messes up, the consequences can be really um, dire. And I'm obviously going to have to use this as an excuse to plug tomorrow's episode of Planet B, which is, of course, on the topic of infrastructure, where we will be talking to guests like Kate Aronoff, like Yanis Varoufakis, about what happens when you outsource essential services to unaccountable, un like lacking in private companies that aren't transparent, and how we can reclaim infrastructure from the private sector uh, in order to, you know, protect ourselves and create a more hospitable world uh, in the wake of, of climate breakdown. So I'm glad that we're all back together, but the conversations shouldn't end, the thinking shouldn't end, because this is actually a lot more common on, on a sort of smaller scale than, than we might think. Mm, no, I think that's a really important point. I thought your tweet, Fred, yesterday was, was very astute. I do think that it had, even if it wasn't consciously censorship, I think the fact that we are a media platform and ultimately whether or not we can speak to our audience is dependent on the the internal policies of a Silicon Valley owned company. I do think that means that it, it relates to censorship. If, even if we were deleted because of, you know, some opaque mistake somewhere, the fact that we can get taken down by that and then we have to go begging to a, you know, to a tech giant, I do think has you know quite severe implications when it comes to media freedom and censorship. But I absolutely take your point and think that that association and that sort of commonality between that experience and the experience of an Uber driver and also how, you know, we were in a privileged position where we could, you know, use outside means and not just rely on this sort of, you know, anonymous chatbot mm. and sort of go go yeah. outside those formal processes to, you know, get reinstated. Mm. I think that's all, you know, super important things to keep in mind. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that the the, it, the thing about censorship, it's it's also about how it's so easy to get excluded from these essential platforms because these platforms don't carry themselves with the scrutiny and the regulation that, you know, infrastructures that do provide these services should be. And that's because they are falsely classified as tech companies and understood as tech companies when they're actually much bigger and much more ubiquitous than that. They've become natural monopolies, right? They, they are, they've become more like a, a public utility, more like a, you know, a printing press in a particular newspaper, the only printing press. Thank you if you are a regular donor. It is those regular donations that really keep this organisation going. If you are donating anything or the equivalent of one hour's wage a month, which is what we usually ask for, thank you very much. If not, please do go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. Next story. Insulate Britain have driven the issue of energy efficiency in UK homes to the top of the political agenda. But their method of doing so, blocking cars by sitting on main roads, has made them lots of enemies in the process. Spurred on by a hostile press, we've already seen many incidents where members of the public have forcibly removed protesters from the street. That's now escalated with an elderly protester being targeted with ink. It wasn't painful, it didn't hurt, it, it, it was unpleasant, but um, just sad, you know, the whole thing's sad. You know, the, it's sad that we have to do this. I hate doing it. You know, I'm, I'm a retired doctor, I've spent my life trying to help people and I'm reduced to having to do this because the government will, won't address the problem adequately, basically. Are you worried about violence against you? Yeah, of course, terribly worried, yes. What a sad image. A retired doctor, all he's wanted to do all his life is help people. Now he's got, you know, he's, he's speaking to the media with ink sprayed across his, his face. It wasn't a pleasant sight. And he's, you know, understandably worried about other forms of violence. We've seen people at these protests, you know, driving their cars um, into people, you know, normally stopping before real damage is done, but it's, it's dangerous and it's incredibly intimidating, dragging people from the street. What a hero and, and what an indictment of our media that they have so committedly cast these people as the villains. Like, are Insulate tactics, uh, Insulate Britain's tactics disruptive? Yeah, but do you know what else is like incredibly disruptive? Climate breakdown, like precarious food supplies, increases in, in global floods and droughts and heat waves and mass displacement. These are all things that are far more disruptive than a road being blocked and yet our media are letting the people who are continuing to put up, push us down that path off the hook. We just spoke about earlier in the show about how Sunak's budget is making it easier for people to fly within the UK and we've heard very little contextualizing of that in the media. We've heard very little attention being put towards that in our mainstream sort of political broadcasters and, you know, yeah, it's the elderly protesters who are trying to to ring the alarm on this issue, um, who are facing the bile of the public. And that's because the way the media have treated them is essentially essentially a form of inciting hatred against them. And, and I often say this, but this is because the people who are in the upper echelons of the media are ideologically very intertwined with those who not only, you know, benefit from our fossil fuel economy and would, you know, be disadvantaged by a serious shift away from, you know, fossil fuel capitalism, um, but also because they probably feel quite insulated, ironically, from, uh, from the impacts of climate breakdown, you know, whether, whether right or wrong, someone like, I think it was Richard Maidley, who was, uh, you know, going after an insulate Britain protester and feeling very good about himself for doing so, he probably feels, rightly or wrongly, fairly secure that, that him, you know, his kids, his kid, children's children um, are going to be able to protect themselves from the excesses of, of climate breakdown. They'll be able to, you know, throw money at the problem. They'll be able to get up and move freely to somewhere else if they need to. And it's because him and other people of his kind of class and privilege have historically been able to shield themselves from the worst excesses of, you know, health crises or financial crises that have sunk the rest of us. So he sort of probably has no reason to believe that this is going to be any different. But also, 
we we really need to make it clear that whatever you might think of insulate Britain's tactics, which by the way are sort of very standard civil disobedience tactics, like this isn't some kind of historically unprecedented moment. This is what happens when people have exhausted legitimate ways of expressing themselves and legitimate ways of trying to to move the political spectrum uh, towards you know an urgent crisis. This is sort of a normal part of the course. It's actually very historically precedented, but we still have to make it very clear that whatever you might think about their tactics or however inconveniencing you might find them, the vast majority of British people's interests are far more aligned with, you know, insulate Britain than they are with those who are telling us that these protesters should be at best ridiculed and at worst, you know, physically attacked, which is a really worrying situation for us to be in. And it's sort of right has become wrong and wrong has become right. And I think we can only blame a sort of insufficient media and, and, and toothless media for, for bringing us to this position. I mean, it's, it's super interesting with Insulate Britain, isn't it? In a way, I sort of, you know, I kind of sit on the fence about the strategy. I'm a bit sort of, you know, live and, live and let live. I, I don't know if it's pissing off more people than it's winning over or if it's, it's worth pissing off people and, and stopping the odd person get to somewhere important to get this issue up the media agenda. Um, generally, I mean, with Extinction Rebellion in general, I thought, you know, even though some members of the public are quite understandably annoyed, the fact that it got that issue up the media agenda was, was so important that it was worth it. But one thing I think that has changed in the way that people on the left are discussing Insulate Britain is at the start, people were like, I mean, I can see why people are getting kind of annoyed at being blocked in the the road but the longer it's gone on and the more that the insulate britain protesters have taken you know this abuse in the street this absolute demonization from britain's press pretty patel saying she's going to change the law just to stamp down on them and then day after day you still get you know often these retirees or, or you know people who've who've in, in the words of that protester just wanted to help people their their whole life saying no we are willing to go out and and get shouted at by by members of the public to get dragged away by police people and and to risk yeah abuse it is you know it's it's impressive they're still going it, it it is very indicative of a bunch of people who really really care about their cause and it's a good cause and so that's i mean that's that's impressive i think our next story also involves insulate britain we've got double whammy today Mike Graham is a loudmouth radio host employed by Talk Radio, which is part of the Rupert Murdoch empire. It's always been clear Mike Graham is a little dim. I've, I've met him before. I've tussled with him on social media. But an interview this week takes the stupidity to a new level. This is Mike speaking to insulate Britain activist Cameron. Morning, Mike. Oh, hello. What are you glued to, Cameron? Uh, just your screen, unfortunately. Unfortunately. What do you do for a living, well, Cameron? I'm a carpenter. A carpenter, right. So how safe is that for the climate? Well, I work with timber, which is a much more sustainable material rather than concrete. I also but you work with trees that have been cut down then, don't you? It's a sustainable building practice. How is it sustainable if you're killing trees? Because it's regenerative, you can grow trees. Right. Well, you can you can grow all sorts of things, can't you? Well, you can't grow concrete. You can. See you, Cameron. Cheerio. That was Cameron. Uh, he grows trees and then cuts them down and then makes things from them. Brilliant. Marvellous. <laughs> I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. I have watched that clip so many times. Like It's, it's now got 10 million views on, on Twitter. And, you know, sometimes you think, oh, it's probably not 10 million people. This time, I'm I'm sure it's not 10 million people because I've watched that clip like 20 times now. Like, it's, it's just... It's addictive. It's, it's such it's addictive. a joy to watch. Fox, <laughs> can we play it again, please? Morning, Mike. Oh, hello. What are you glued to, Cameron? Uh, just your screen, unfortunately. Unfortunately. What do you do for a living, well, Cameron? I'm a carpenter. A carpenter, right. So how safe is that for the climate? Well, I work with timber, which is a much more sustainable material rather than concrete. I also but you work with trees that have been cut down then, don't you? It's a sustainable building practice. How is it sustainable if you're killing trees? 
because it's regenerative, you can grow trees. Right. Well, you can, you can grow all sorts of things, can't you? Well, you can't grow concrete. You can. See <laughs> you, Cameron. Cheerio. That was Cameron. Uh, he grows trees and then cuts them down and then makes things from them. Brilliant. Marvellous. I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. <laughs> I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. I don't know what people he was, you know, carpenters. He doesn't want to talk to carpenters because. Just anti-carpenter bigotry that is just rife. I mean, also, firstly, this this video has literally dominated my relationship over the past two days because all my partner wants to do is just watch this video. I'm just like, <laughs> can we please have dinner? And he's just like, no, just one more time. Like, let's just talk about like how amazing. Firstly, also, this guy should do media training. Because in all my years of trying to tussle with talk radio, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I could just not say anything and just let them like hang themselves with their own rope. But I just, what I find so funny about it is that talk radio posted it. Like, what? I refuse to believe that that was not posted by like a disgruntled employee trying to troll Mike Graham. Because how could you possibly watch that and not be like, oh, this makes our entire channel and our flagship host look like a clown <laughs> we can also get they didn't just post it they also let, let's see how they how they replied to the tweet where they posted it so the the original tweet says you know mike's mike's interview of insulate britain spokesman cameron lasts less than a minute um and then they follow that up with watch more insulate britain fails on youtube that was not an Insulate Britain fail. That was a Mike Graham talk radio fail because he thought you could grow concrete. <laughs> he was also, the way, he, you know, the cogs just weren't turning in his mind. This guy, you know, no, I don't necessarily think is, is what you do climate positive is a fair question to ask anyone who's taking part in activism because I, I, mm. I don't think to have an opinion on how the government should respond to climate change, you have to work in a green industry. Lots of people have different kinds of jobs. But this guy had specifically a, a very, very green job. He, he, he works in a green architectural practice, which is based on sustainable wood, where you, you grow the wood, that absorbs the carbon, then you create it into timber, use it instead of concrete. That's actually a carbon sink, because until you burn that, that wood, you know, which will hopefully never happen, it will never return to the atmosphere. So that's, that, that's actively removing carbon from the atmosphere. But Mike Graham was, I suppose, just too dim to work that out. Um, he has been sort of trying to, he, he went on the radio, on talk radio again later saying, no, concrete can grow because it can expand, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Any final thoughts on that video before we call it a night, Dahlia? We need to track him down. Like we need to hire him because he's just like, just so, it's just such a perfect like segment. And also just like, because I, I thought I recognized this Mike Graham dude because he was the one who, on Jeremy Vine, was he the one who said that thing about crushing the minorities on Jeremy Vine? No, it was a different, a different guy with a similar look. Oh, it was a different, okay, wow. I, I can't tell my, uh, you know, <laughs> my pound shop, you know, fascists from each other. Although, to be fair, I don't know if this Mike Graham guy is a fascist. I just know that he is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Let's wrap it up there. We, we, we would show you the clip again, but I mean, you can find it and you can watch it as, you know, to your heart's content. As I say, I'll, I'll, I'll be watching that for weeks. Well done, Cameron Ford. Um, Dahlia, absolute pleasure to have you on tonight's show. Yeah, lovely to see you. A relief to see you. Yeah, all, all the sweeter because it seemed at one point like it might not happen. Um, thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. We'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.